In the latest episode of our True Connections podcast, Alan Hooks is joined by the founder of Mirabeau Wine, Stephen Cronk, as well as sharing how he and his family made his long-standing winemaking dreams a reality. Stephen discusses brand success, working with nature, and the power of social media. Stephen, many thanks for joining us today on the True Connection podcast. We're really thrilled to have you on, and it's going to be great to hear a little bit from you about your story and your journey as an entrepreneur. Well, thank you very much for having me on your podcast. Pleasure. And your story, Stephen, is unique, as many stories are, I guess. But you came to establish Mirabeau, the multi-award-winning wine brand, a really rising star of Provence wine brands. You came to that pretty late in life, dare I say, you know, after spending a career in the corporate world. Before we go on to the business, give us a bit of a taster of how that came about and what was the sort of trigger points for you to take that leap to establish the business. Sure. Well, actually, I did join the wine trade as my first job after university because I was completely nuts about wine. And so I joined a small shipper importer in London as a van driver and did my wine exams and eventually made me salesperson. And in fact, I set up my wine company in London at the age of 24 and learned a lot of mistakes along the way about how to run a business, which in hindsight were really useful. It was a really useful time for me, making mistakes as a young entrepreneur without family commitments and mortgages and so on. It was a very good period for me. And then by the time I was 30, though, I decided to actually go and get a, in brackets, a proper job. And in those days, the telecoms industry was really booming. So I got a job in telecoms as a salesperson and started to do quite well met my wife and I soon after I married her I said okay actually one day I want to pay off the mortgage and go buy a vineyard she amused me for several years but I wouldn't stop talking about it and actually it was interesting I was having a dinner with some friends of ours over from Switzerland and they'd heard this story a few years earlier and they said okay Stephen when are you going to do this and actually we used to have a blackboard in the kitchen for our to-do lists and shopping lists and so on and he said okay write a date up on the blackboard the date that you will be in Provence making wine and I did. This was about four years before we eventually left. And he actually sent me a photograph. He took a photograph of the date on the blackboard and sent it to me in May 2008. And he said, where are you living now, Stephen? And I was still in London, still talking about it. And that was a real trigger point. I didn't want to be that person that just spoke about it but never did it. And yeah, more or less a year later, I'd quit my job. I'd managed to wangle a redundancy package. And we decided, yeah, we sold the house, took the three children out of school, which was a tough thing to do because we were all doing this because of my, if you like, passion for wine, but it was actually ultimately quite a selfish thing. You know, it was me that was wanting to take the five of us away from our comfort zone in Teddington in South London to go and live this life making wine in South of France that we had no experience in. So that was the first step was actually having the courage and getting the support from my wife and our friends to say, okay, let's do this. So, yeah, we sold the house in 2009 and headed to the south of France to create Mirabeau. And, Stephen, what is it about the sort of the wine industry? You describe it as your passion, as it should be, but what is it about the industry that really gets you? What is it that drives you? Well, I love an industry where the product is interesting and the product is social. 
And that's very much the case with wine. Because I had been in the wine trade, and then I went into telecoms where you're selling a service. You can't actually see or taste or feel what you're selling and marketing. I really missed that element of the wine trade and was really keen to get back into it. And on that, I think that's what makes your story even more interesting from Mirabeau's perspective, because you've created a brand and a lot of the products have followed, whereas you know, I guess many producers would have bought the property or established an estate and then produced from there. But you've done it a little bit differently, in a different way around. How did that come about, Stephen? What was the thinking behind that? When I was researching how I was going to make this happen, I went to visit other wineries, other British winemakers who had made the step. And also, because I had been in the wine trade before, I was speaking to friends of mine from my previous time in the wine trade. And I met one guy who's a British master of wine based on the Languedoc, and he really woke me up to the reality of wine production. He said, Stephen, there are three V's in the wine business. There's viticulture, which is growing grapes. There's vinification, which is turning grapes into wine. And there's vendre, French, to sell. And he said, you know, what you're trying to do, and a lot of people try to do when they come into this business, is to own the whole supply chain. So make the great, you know, be a farmer, be a winemaker, and be a salesperson and marketeer. He said, don't obsess about owning the whole thing, especially if you're undercapitalized. And we were. You know, we only had the money from selling our house. We didn't really have enough money to buy a huge estate. And we were up against... Yeah, a lot of the big Provence producers have been doing this for generations. They have often a big wine estate. They often have little or no debt on it, and they're very well established. So that made me think to approach it from the selling aspect rather than the sort of supply side. And I quickly realized, actually, that lots of wine farmers here in Provence who are fantastic at growing grapes. They're tractor drivers. They're farmers. They know how to work the soil. And there are great winemakers here as well. So if I can actually find the source for the wine, that I should actually focus for the first several years anyway on creating a brand. Because, you know, you can make the best wine in the world, but if no one finds it and if no one buys it, then you haven't got a business. So we really focused it from the brand side rather than from the supply side. I think that was the great advantage we had. So basically, I took my first idea, a bottle of wine to Waitrose. This was in Christmas 2010. I showed it to them and I said, I'm going to make this wine fly off the shelf. And that was not a conversation the wine buyer was used to having. You know, normally, a buyer talking to a producer will talk about you know, the three P's, product, price, and promotion. And normally, it's a kind of once-a-year meeting, and the producer has a very little impact on the way the wine moves off the shelf, unless you are a big brand, a champagne brand or a spirits brand. And so we really focus on that. And for us, the big enabler was social media. Because at that stage, Twitter was beginning and Facebook was around and YouTube and so on. I mean, Instagram didn't exist then. But we knew that if we could harness the power of social media, we would have an advantage over our competitors. And that was really what we were trying to do. We're not trying to become the biggest wine brand in the world. We were just trying to make sure that our Provence Rosé Mirabeau would outsell the ones next door to it on the shelf. And I guess, Stephen, that you touched on social media there, that emergence of social media platforms was a real help in that late 2000s period as things really started to accelerate there. You described the brand as a lifestyle brand. What does that mean to you? What does it say to you when you say you're a lifestyle brand? 
Well, one of the great things about making wine in Provence is that it's a rosé wine. Now, 90% of the wines from this region are rosé. In fact, it's the only wine region in the world to specialize in rosé wine. But it's such an evocative region. A lot of people know where Provence is. A lot of people have been to Saint-Tropez or to Cannes or to Marseille. And they have a picture in their minds of this region. I mean, it could be the lavender fields. It could be the perfume of grass. But a lot of people know this area. And we try and transport people to the area. So in our conversations, in our posts, and now with Instagram especially, we're trying to transport people to the region and give a sense of how people should be enjoying our wines and now our gin. We're not showing how we make it. A lot of wine producers, um, especially in the early days, were showing more of the production side of them on a tractor and so on. That's not really transportative. That's more kind of background. Whereas we're really trying to create that lifestyle image of the south of France and bring it to people wherever they're drinking our wines. And see, when you're in front of buyers and in a market such as wine, which incredibly crowded thousands of producers. Aside from the branding, how do you get taken seriously in the marketplace yourself? That's a really good question because there are, I mean, literally in Provence alone, there are probably over a thousand wine labels or brands, if you like. And we knew from the outset that we were going to have to do things differently to stand out. And, you know, you're right. We talked about it just now. The social media element was a big part of it. And also with all brands, it's about storytelling. And I think the very thing that makes us stand out was the very thing that was very challenging for us as well, is that we're coming in as outsiders with no experience. None of us in the family spoke French. Uh, none of us had made wine before. Uh, the odds were really stacked against us. And we weren't multimillionaires or billionaires who were coming in here and doing this as a hobby project. We, we were people that had committed <laughs> to getting this right. There really was no going back. And I think the story element, I think, really resonates with people. And the fact that we've now, last year, we got the data that showed that we were the biggest selling French rosé brand in the UK, which is our focus market. But it's like, you know, we're up against all the big guys. And there's no one simple thing we're doing. We're obviously doing a lot of events. We're doing PR, we're doing social, we're doing collaborations and partnerships and so on. But the whole thing that we're doing has enabled us to become one of the best selling rosé brands in the UK. So it's working. Uh, now we need to stay there. And that's a big job in itself. But now we need to focus on other markets as well. So we're trying to take what we've learned in the UK and transpose that into other key markets for us. When you're thinking about product innovation and differentiating yourselves, we've spoken about the big players around, which I guess run many parts of their organizations through data and market demand and so on. I'm guessing, Stephen, a lot of your work is based on judgment, right, rather than necessarily data. Is that the way you think about it? Or do you use a lot of data in terms of analyzing what would work? That's also a very interesting point because, to be honest, it's all on instinct. We like to think we've got a fairly good feeling for what's going on in the market. We try and stay on top of the press and we spend a lot of time in the markets and we listen and we observe. But we don't have the budgets to buy a lot of data. And also because we're founder-led, we're family-owned, we don't have to justify our decisions to a senior management team. So if somebody was trying to do this at Diageo or Merritt Hennessy, if they were to go and launch a new product, they'd have to quite rightly have a lot of data that proves there was a gap in the market, whereas we don't have the data, so we go on instinct. And I would say it's worked 90% of the time. We've been really lucky, but you know we have made a few things that haven't worked. But again, you know, I think to succeed, you must first go out and try. 
and we do that a lot actually you know provence is known for its dry roses and all the provence appalachian wines are becoming more and more expensive now because the region is becoming the benchmark for dry rosé around the world so we're trying to innovate and bring in new consumers by going to other wine regions in the south of France and making a Provence style rosé, for example, which isn't from Provence, and trying to always think about how the people might discover our brand. In the same way, you know, we've seen the massive Prosecco trend in the UK. And we thought, well, okay, let's make a sparkling rosé wine. So it's actually really simplistic. We think there might be an opportunity. We look into it briefly, and then if it feels right, we'll go and do it. As an extension of that, you're talking about your sparkling rosé Stephen, you've also recently launched a new dry gin. And I've got to get this right. It's a rosé gin, not a pink gin, right? <laughs> yes, you got that right. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, we've seen a resurgence of that particular spirit over the last few years. I guess it's relating back to your point on instinct and judgment in terms of product innovation. What is it about your gin, which is, I guess, again, a little bit different from others? Well, I should probably talk a bit about how we came about creating it as well, because we were always big gin fans when we were in the UK, especially. And we actually had a friend of ours down here who had a little wine business near Grass. And he kept nagging us. You know, he'd come and see us every few months and nag us to make a gin in Provence. And we kind of thought, well, yeah, we like the idea, but it doesn't seem like an obvious thing to do. You know, we're winemakers. But then we actually were making a wine for a client whereby we were reducing the alcohol slightly because there is a lot more interest now in lower alcohol wine. So actually, we could only reduce the wine from 13% to 11%. And we did that through a very clever machine called a reverse osmosis machine. And as a byproduct of lowering the alcohol in the wine, we ended up with 500 liters of pure alcohol that had been taken out of the wine, and it still smelled like rosy wine. And we thought, gosh, <laughs> this is going to be the base for our gin. Let's go make a gin. You know, we've got all the botanicals from the French Riviera, the botanicals that have created the perfume industry. So we've got an abundance of choice here. Let's create a rosé gin made out of grapes instead of grain. So the neutral spirit is made out of grapes. In the end, we don't de-alcoholize every time you want to make gin. We now have a sauce for neutral grape spirit, but we use that as the base spirit. It had this abundance of botanicals to choose from. And we wanted to make a kind of London dry style gin, not a sweet pink gin, because a lot of the big pink gins on the market, especially in the UK, are actually quite sweet or flavored. And we wanted ours to be a really classic gin, although we put our rosé wine in it as well. It's rosé colored, and it's got an incredible mouthfeel. And again, we just thought, let's do this. So my wife has been behind the designs on all our labels. You know, we do a lot of this in-house. And she designed a bottle, and I went to see the Waitrose Spirits buyer, and I said, if we were to make a gin that looked like that and tasted like this, would you take it? And he said, yeah, I probably would. Put it in front of me. So that's how we started. A bit of a long story, but ultimately it was we didn't use any data. And we just thought this feels right. Yeah. And it's incredible, that story, because I guess the question could be, do we need yet another gin on our shelves? Surely we've got enough choice to choose from. But as you say, you've created something and found a way to differentiate, which is fantastic. And of course, it not being pink is probably helpful also, Stephen, I'm sure. Yeah, and people still love to have rosy-colored cocktails and drinks and so on. So we've shown it to bartenders who go, wow, okay, now I can have a pink gin, in inverted commas, we call it rosy gin. As you know, they can make rosy-colored cocktails. 
So we were working on Rosé Negronis and Rosé Martinis and all sorts of cocktails flavoured with our gin. And again, it just creates something that is high impact in bars. So it just felt right. And you're right, there are so many gins out there, even probably more gins than there are Provence Rosés. But, you know, we're used to working in a competitive environment and it just forces us to be better at our job. Stephen, it's obvious, it's clear that you and Jeannie are very, very creative. You've got a mind of imagination and I think that's clearly a reason why the brand has been so successful. But I just want to talk about your influences and what you draw upon from them in terms of both your business and life more generally, I guess. You've spoken a lot about communications, you've spoken a lot about why Mirabeau over others and what differentiates. And you've also mentioned about obsessing about the consumer, understanding what consumers want. And this is something which I think resonates with many people in business about obsessing about who their clients are. How do you look at that and how do you obsess about your consumer group? Well, I suppose going back to influences, I read a couple of books before we started the business, one by a crazy American called Gary Vaynerchuk, who I've met a couple of times, and he would probably thank me for saying he's crazy, but he's got some brilliant ideas. And he wrote a book called Crush It. And he basically said, you know, whatever your passion is now, social media is an enabler to express that passion directly to the consumer and to really engage with them. That was a real influence on me at the beginning. That's one reason why we went down that social media route. And another book I read was a book called Tribes by Seth Godin. And he talked about creating a tribe of followers, people who love your story, love your brand, love your products. And you don't need to go and try and get a million. You start with one. You start to grow your tribe. And so those kind of simple tenets, if you like, are what got us going. And we're continuing to try and engage, engage authentically, engage with consumers through all the different routes to market that we use. And that's what keeps us going, you know, and we love meeting people too. So we're often going, especially in the UK, but now it's becoming more around Europe as we go to events and meet the end consumer. I think they like that. I think, you know, people like to know where things come from. I think Providence is far more important than it ever has been. I think the way we act as a brand is really important and, again, will become more important as years go by. So it's really about just trying to engage in a meaningful and authentic way. Yeah. We've spoken about your passions, the industry, your family, of course. One aspect which I know you and the family are incredibly passionate about is social and environmental impact. And I guess since you bought the farm a couple of years ago now, 2019 or so, when you bought the farm, that's seemingly become more and more important and very prevalent for you. In terms of the social and environmental impact, you've established the Regenerative Viticulture Foundation. Just tell us a little bit about that and the background to you establishing that. So it was always our dream when we moved down here to buy a vineyard. You know, we knew we couldn't buy the vineyard first, we'd need to build the brand first. And then at such time that we had the ability to raise money, we would go and buy a vineyard. And actually, we started looking for a vineyard seven years ago and it took us five years to find the vineyard, which is now Domaine Mirabeau. It's 15 miles away from Saint-Tropez. It's the most stunning vineyard that we looked at, and it was number 40. We had to look at 39 other vineyards before we found the right place for us to have as our home, if you like, as a brand. And when we bought it, we always knew we'd want to farm in a way that was sensitive to the environment. So we converted it to organic farming straight away because it had been conventionally farmed for 20 plus years. 
and conventionally farmed means that it's sprayed with herbicides, with pesticides, and then it's synthetic fertilizers and so on. Even though it was a beautiful vineyard and the production from the vineyard was pretty good from the previous vintages, we could see that the soil was poorly depleted. The organic life in the soil was really low. The erosion was terrible. The water would just run off it every time it rained. And it was basically addicted almost to the synthetics that were coming in you know, week by week by the previous owners. So converting it to organic is basically just saying you're not going to spray with any unnatural inputs, but it wasn't going to regenerate the soils. It wasn't going to repair the damage that had been done in the decades before. And so we started to research into different ways of farming. And a friend of mine who's a keen gardener sent me an article written by Eric Asimov, who is the wine writer of the New York Times. And his article was about this lady in Oregon called Mimi Castile. And it's a fascinating article. And she talks about regenerative farming, whereby she doesn't plow, whereby she focuses on soil quality and she focuses on biodiversity. And she was creating amazing fruit in her vineyard with very little input, certainly no synthetic inputs, very little intervention at all by her. And she was making amazing fruit and her soil quality was outstanding. So we started that practice here. But when we wanted to research into how does one turn from conventional farming to regenerative farming in the world of wine without killing your vines, without massively reducing your yields, you know, where do you start? How do you start? And we realized that, yes, I can go and read articles here and there, but there wasn't a really great resource for wine farmers to understand how to farm regeneratively. So we decided to create a foundation with Mimi and with winemakers from around the world. And we have two masters of wine and we have a permaculturalist from Denmark on the board of trustees. And we've created a foundation which is a conduit for people to learn about farming vineyards regeneratively. And it's something that I'm really proud of. We're only just launching it now, but it's something where I think we can really change the way that vineyards are farmed. And you know, I want to be a responsible part of the change whereby you no longer see bare earth between the rows of vines. I want to see life between those rows of vines. So I might be part of the reason why vineyards are looking slightly scruffier in the future. But there's a lot of bare earth that should be not only full of life, but also sequestering carbon. I did the math once a few months ago. I did the math on you know, the average circumference of a 20-year-old vine and how many vines you have per hectare. The vine actually only touches about 1% of the land. And yet systematically, generations of farmers have said everything else in that vineyard is a weed. I mean, in France, the word for weed is a mauvaise herbe, a bad herb. The mindset is all wrong. You need to bring life into the vineyard. You need to move away from that monoculture mindset and learn to work with nature. So basically, the Regenerative Viticulture Foundation is going to be hopefully showing people how to rewild vineyards without putting their production at risk, but actually reducing the environmental impact that viticulture has on the planet. Sounds a fantastic initiative, and it'd be fantastic for you to share that content and ideas, I guess, as a collective for other wineries to follow suit, Stephen. I'm sure that's your intention. Well, absolutely. And when you add together how much surface area all the vineyards in the world cover, it's something like 18 million acres. You know, that's a lot of land that could be life to insects and birds and obviously many, many plant species. But like I said before, that land should be used to keep carbon in the soil. And so the more I can talk about it and the more I can show evidence to people, to other wine farmers in other regions, that this is the way forward, then hopefully the world will be a slightly better place. 
And on that point, you touch on in terms of the climate impact, if you like. You've seen everything since you purchased Mirabeau a couple of years ago, you know, from frosts to fires to lack of rain. And this year's been tough again, Stephen, hasn't it, for me? Local weather perspective and the destruction over the summer for the farmers. How much of an impact does it have for you? Yeah, it's been incredible, really. I mean, if I had done my plan A, which is sell the house and buy a vineyard, if I'd bought this vineyard when I bought it in 2019, I would lost, as we did, about 30% of our first harvest to frost. So we had minus six degrees centigrade for two days in a row. And our neighbors were saying they'd never seen this before. This is once in a lifetime frost. And this April, 2021, we had minus seven degrees. So it's like, okay, if this is once in a lifetime, it's happened twice in two years, that sounds to me like climate change. And we reckon we probably would have lost about 50% this year to frost. But we had become resigned to the fact that, you know, and you can't do much against frost. We lit fires and had smoke over the vineyard, but it was too big a frost for us to really protect against. So we reckon we were going to lose about half to frost. But then August the 18th, we had a forest fire. It took out about 7,000 hectares of of National Park, a beautiful national park all around our vineyard. And it literally 360 degree rotation around our vineyard burnt. And a lot of our vines, the leaves on the vines burnt. Two of our barns inside the vineyard burnt down as well with all our equipment in. Even though we had five fire trucks there the whole night trying to protect the place, the fire was so fierce that they couldn't. So they kept the animals alive and they kept the houses intact. But we lost a lot because actually vineyards are fire breaks. So it was only the vines around the outside of our vineyard that were actually burnt. But we knew that we had a big risk of smoke taint. And smoke taint can't be detected when you eat the grapes. So you have to actually break down the smoke molecules only released during fermentation. So you have to still harvest and you still have to start the fermentation. And then you can see whether there's going to be any smoke taint in the wine. And sure enough, all of our wine has been lost this year. So what wasn't lost to frost has been lost to the fire. And that's obviously impacting your supply for the foreseeable future. How much of a major impact is that having on the business? Well, actually, our domain wine, our domain Mirabeau, is a very small part of our total business, thankfully. You know, it's probably a few percent of our total business. And actually, even though from where we were standing at the time, it looked like total devastation, there were only about, I think, three vineyards were actually burnt. So the other six or 700 wine estates and so on escaped. So thankfully, the fires didn't have a big impact on grape production here in Provence. And actually, the frost had a bigger impact. But no, thankfully, it's not impacted the whole region. And just touching on Mirabeau, finally, Stephen, an incredible business we've spoken about, which has grown internationally, been recognized across the globe. Really interesting product innovation, responsible brand. You've got a great position in that it competes with the big producers, as we've spoken about. Where do you go from here? What's next for you guys? Well, we sometimes feel like we're just beginning, really. Okay, we're selling in 50 countries, but you know we're not particularly deep or in particularly large any of those countries. So we've got a big sales job to do, <laughs> got a big marketing job to do. We want to you know remain, even as we grow, a really engaging and authentic brand, creating great moments for people through our products. So there's a lot of work to be done, but you know, I'm looking to raise some money next year to build a distillery. At the moment, we're using a friendly distillery out of the region to make the gin, but I really want to create a beautiful destination distillery here in Provence. So there's that. And yeah, we just want to carry on making great wines and putting smiles on people's faces all over the world. And talking about putting smiles on people's faces, Stephen, 
I was very amused by the rather unconventional way that you found to open bottles of wine, which seems to have gone viral on YouTube, whereby you can open a bottle of wine with a shoe, which is hopefully found on your feet somewhere, a wall, and that's about it. Uh, How on earth did you come about that? Were you caught short one day? (laughs) I wasn't, but a friend of mine had sent me a link to a French guy who was showing how you could open a bottle of wine by putting in your shoe and banging against a wall. And this guy was doing it, and it took about three or four minutes to do it. And I thought, well, that's interesting. I'll give it a go. Because at this stage, and this was 2014, I think, you know, YouTube was one of the biggest platforms for us. And we'd already made over 200 videos. Um, we're using it to sort of demystify wine and to show how we make wine in Provence and so on. And so we thought, okay, let's give it a go. So I tried it with one of my wines. And the cork came out so easily. And I thought, wow, okay, a lot of people, if not everybody, has been caught short. You know, got a bottle of wine, but doesn't have a corkscrew. So I thought, okay, this has got potentially a big audience. So I set my camera up, had a shave, <laughs> grabbed a bottle of wine, took my shoe off and did the video. And the whole take was 50 seconds. In fact, my wife was inside on the other side of the wall inside the house. And at one point shouting at me to stop banging the wall. I hadn't told her what I was doing. And yeah, that video has become the most viewed wine video in the world. It's had over 100 million views of which 12 million are on YouTube. And in fact, it's well over 100 million on other channels where it's been shared. So yeah, that was a bit of fun. It's not what we normally do. But back in the day when we were just starting, it was an amazing amount of publicity we were gaining. It was picked up by a lot of the press. I got invited to wine schools to talk about wine marketing and how to use YouTube as a route to market to attract customers and so on. So it was a bit left field, definitely part of my legacy. (laughs) Clearly it will be. And to our point earlier, a great way to use social media to advocate your product, Stephen. So well done, albeit it might have come about by accident. Sounds really great fun. Stephen, thank you very much for joining us. Really enjoyed the conversation. Great to hear a little bit more about you and your story and the story of Mirabeau too, as it goes from strength to strength. And it's great to hear also about your work with the foundation too. Thank you for joining us. I know our listeners will have enjoyed hearing from you and let's hope we can catch up again in due course. Love to come down and see you at some point and perhaps we'll speak again then when we come to see you. That would be great. And thanks, Adam, for having me on your podcast. It's been a lot of fun. That's all for this edition of Julius Baer's True Connections podcast. Thank you for listening. And please do keep in touch with us on Twitter, LinkedIn and at juliusbear.com. Thank you.